So in Exodus chapter 4, we're right in the middle of the Lord calling Moses to go to Pharaoh, the leadership of Egypt, and the leadership of Israel, and to declare to both the leadership of Israel and the leadership of Egypt that God has, number one, chosen and anointed Moses as his messenger and as his servant, and number two, that he's the deliverer of Israel. So Moses is being told by God that he is the deliverer of Israel and and how he is to go and deliver this message. And he's already presented his fearfulness in the situation that, you know, the burning bush and the Lord had said that he should take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. And then in chapter four, verse one, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Now, there's a few things uh, to think about here in this uh, introductory verse. Moses is confessing that he fears that he will not be listened to. And that honestly is the dilemma for any messenger. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're delivering you know, a, a school teacher, you want your students to receive your teaching and to be able to apply it. As a pastor, you know, we want our message to be received and then o- obeyed. You know, that uh, it isn't so much that they're, you know, obeying, you know, Moses or me. It's that this is the word of the Lord that we're delivering and the desire that people would experience the obedience and the blessing that comes from obeying God's word. So Moses is presenting to the Lord, you know, suppose they don't listen. The Lord's already told Moses that particularly Pharaoh is not going to listen, that he's going to disobey. In the previous chapter, the Lord had said, you're going to deliver this message, but they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to heed what you have to say. Um, It's difficult to not uh, be disheartened when that is the case. Uh, When you know uh, that uh, the message you're going to be delivering is going to be ignored, uh, it can embitter you. It can cause you uh, to deliver the message uh, with perhaps a tone that uh, we should not. You know, um, praying that someone's heart is ready for the message is, is very critical. So how am I going to deliver this message so that they know that you've you know, appeared to me. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod, literally a staff. You know, this is his shepherd's crook. Perhaps it's you know, what he has been walking with to tend his sheep. Very often what the Lord asks us to serve him with is exactly what we have in our hands. Uh, you know, we we look at, um, you know, the call of the Lord and Moses is going to begin to argue with the Lord in a moment about how ill-equipped he is. So you, you listen to uh, the modern church today and they have an attitude about uh, what it takes to be a minister, uh, you know, how you need to do it, what what the method is, what it means to be a modern pastor, modern preacher, someone 
you know, in your church? What what is it that your church is doing that's any different than anybody else? You got to do it better. You got to do it slicker. You've got to have all kinds of gadgets and gizmos and methods. And honestly, that's not what the Lord tells us at all. You know, what do you have in your hand? This is the dumbest thing to start a ministry with. You know, I mean, what what do you have in your hands? You know, day to day, is it a calculator? Is it is it you know your computer? Are you uh, you know swinging a hammer? Are are you what are you doing? Whatever it is you're doing, that's what the Lord is asking Moses. What do you have in your hands? What do you have in your hands sitting here this morning? Same question of the Lord. That's how you're going to serve Him. If He wants something else in your hands. He's going to put something else in your hands, right? When I first started serving the Lord, what did I have in my hands? I had a gas pump in my hand. Seriously, every single day I, I was a gas station attendant or I was flipping burgers. That's what I was doing when I first started serving the Lord. And I heard and understood this premise. And I just preached the bark off from everybody that was right handy, you know. they They got to hear... Uh, the message that I was share very few of them received it, but those that received it, right, to them he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. What do you have in your hands? It's, it's a rod. It's my staff. He said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. I would think so. You know, you, you're, the thing that you've had suddenly becomes venomous. Uh, you, you've had this thing in your hand all the time and did not realize that it was deadly. There's something to learn in that process. Uh, as we move through this, there are things Moses learns about himself. You know, I'm not trying to create the symbology here. I mean, that, that would be, you might, you might be scared of your stick for the rest of your life. You understand what I'm saying? You've had this staff in your hand every day, and it just became a serpent in front of you. Uh, watch what happens. The Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. You know, that'll give you post-traumatic stress disorder. Just, you got to keep an eye on the staff for the rest of your days, you know. I don't know how that applies as a pastor and what the Lord is saying about your staff, but, you know, anyway, something to consider in the process. Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord your God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, uh, you're going to see, uh, hopefully you're familiar with this, account uh, already, but you're going to see that uh, the Egyptian magicians uh, can imitate this uh, action. They, they've got their sleight of hand trick, and they do the same thing. So, you know, when you come to the world and you prepare to share your message with them, and they don't receive it, and they act like, oh, we've seen things like that. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when people reject what you know to be the miraculous 
work of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom, literally like inside your cloak. Put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Um, You know, again, uh, we've seen this in movies perhaps. We've read this so many times. You shouldn't um, be desensitized to the gravity of what Moses is experiencing. Um, you know, at this time, what was known as leprosy today, what is known as leprosy a, a little bit different, but at this time, you know, uh, it, it was a condition that killed the nerve endings in, um, you know, a, a person's body. And then what would happen is they would injure their hands or their their face or their extremities and not realizing the injury, they wouldn't attend to it. You know, imagine in the state of Maine if you could not feel mosquitoes biting you. Okay? Seriously. You know, imagine what you might look like at the end of the day. Imagine if you got completely bitten up like that and then didn't even have the itching sensation to pay attention to it. You say, well, I might know. In the pitch black where there are no flashlights, where, you know, you don't have a headlamp, where you can't feel that biting, where you don't see the welt, where there's no itching sensation. You know, you could be heavily infected before morning's light. Really bad processes went on. You know, reach down to pick up the frying pan. No, no heat sensation, no heat sensation at all, let alone the burning as you pick up the pan. This is this is what happened to lepers. They they destroyed their own body in process. Infections would set in. When we hear, oh, that their skin like rotted off from them, it was from injury after injury after injury, unattended, unattended. Those that survived a long time had people, the wealthy that acquired leprosy, had people that helped pay attention to them. Usually lepers died in a very short period of time due to infections. Moses puts his hand into his bosom, pulls it out, full-blown leprosy. The skin is white, like decaying. Imagine the horror, again, that would occur. Your heart and mind would just sink. Some of you know what it's like to have the doctor look right at you and say horrible things about cancer and otherwise. When you've got that message that there's death in your flesh, that's a very serious message. This is what Moses is realizing in self-examination, right? Throughout the scripture, throughout the scripture, leprosy is likened to sin. And it works the same way. Sin deadens your senses. It kills your conscience. And you injure yourself with your sinfulness. And the sinful infection sets in, progresses, and kills you. That, that's scripture. That's not my interpretation of it. That's what the word of God says is the symbology behind leprosy. Moses puts his hand in his bosom. Listen about, about that illustration. 
he puts his hand within himself. And when he retrieves it, what he recognizes is death. You reach into your... He's about to become the minister for an entire nation. And honestly, if you think about this for a moment, Moses becomes the minister for an entire religion. Okay? This, the gravity on this man's position is so heavy that years later, I'll spoil the story for you a little, right? He was supposed to strike the rock the first time, and it's going to give water to the nation to drink. And then when the people complain later, he's told to speak to the rock, and it will give forth water. And because he's so enraged, he strikes, he disobeys God, and he strikes the rock the second time, as he did the first time, and God hangs that around his neck and says, because you disobeyed me and you struck the rock, you're not going to be the one who brings these people into the promised land. You're not going into the promised land because of that single act of disobedience. Moses, reaching into himself, pulls back death. You reach within yourself for your answers, and what you're going to find is it'll kill you in the process. Death is the only thing you're going to find within yourself. What did the prophet Jeremiah tell us? You know, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things who can know it. We, you know, trust your heart. Follow your heart. You just got to follow your heart. Isn't that what the world says? That's absurd, right? Uh, how, many, how many times have you followed your own heart and regretted it? Uh, there, there's a treachery there. You don't want to follow your own heart. You want to follow God's word. You want to make your heart conform to God's word. Following your own desires it can be, it most often is, a very treacherous thing. He puts his hand in, pulls it out, white as snow. He said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew out his bosom. Behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So God's miraculous power, number one. And number two, at the commandment of the Lord, there are things within ourselves we're going to have to rely upon. You know, this idea of, oh, well, I'm, you know, not equipped to be a minister, which Moses is going to talk about. You know, I'm, I'm not like that guy over there. I mean, if I was going to be a real minister, I'd have to probably look and act and behave and talk a, light, a lot like that person. However it is that you're constructed intellectually, physically, God can, will, and wants to use that. So there is a thing within us that God has specifically constructed us for, and he'll use you just as you are. Relying upon your flesh, looking to your flesh for the answers can be deadly. At the same time, God is going to use your flesh. He's going to use your personality. He's going to use you. At his command, obey, and the Lord will give you health that they may believe that the Lord your God is your father, the God of your father, as he had said. So now, uh, then in verse 8, it will be, 
if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that is the rod, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. That's the Nile. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. And of course, that is going to take place. Ultimately, the Lord is going to describe here that if they continue in their disobedience, it's going to mean death uh, to them as a people. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I I listen uh, to certain preachers and certain orators, and they are intimidating. I mean, you know, their message, their method, their speaking, it's remarkable. You know, uh, the, the East Coast Pastors Conference just took place. Uh, Damien Kyle, uh, the Calvary Chapel pastor, and to listen to Damien preach is just, to me, it's enthralling. Uh, if you've ever heard him on the radio, uh, his his cadence of speech is kind of unique, and uh, his delivery is a little wordy. Uh, you might not be captivated by him by simply listening. The first time I heard Damien speak, I saw him in person and his demeanor and his personality and the way he delivers the message. Now I have that stuck in my head and to to listen to him, he's a remarkable guy. So much preparation goes into every sermon that he delivers. It's, It's so clear. It's just saturated with an intensity of studious work. You know, John Miller uh, is another Calvary Chapel uh, pastor. James, uh, my son-in-law, went uh, to revival uh, there um, in, uh, is that in, uh, I forget what town it's in. It's in Marietta, California. But um, John is like every single sermon he delivers is like this college level, you know, doctorate presentation where he parses out like every single word in the original language and just it's intense you know and then i get up here and bumble through like you know what i just and and yet this is what the lord has called us to what is the lord called don't look at others and think well i mean that might be cool if i was equipped you are equipped you know moses again God, notice, you know, God doesn't say, that's not true. You don't stammer. He doesn't contradict Moses. Oh, that's just your opinion of yourself. God God seemingly says, I know. (laughs) Yes, you stammer. Yes, you stutter. Yes, you have difficulty of speech. Uh, That's okay. We're going to use that. You know, think about this. Uh, the stammering, stuttering Moses stands up and in the face of Pharaoh tells him just how it is. And he doesn't listen. And when we're all done, the Egyptian army is dead at the word of Moses. The stammerer and stutterer was correct. Now who's truly anointed of God, right? 
because the pharaohs claimed that they were gods in the flesh, that they were deity. I mean, which one of these men is closer to actually being the hand of God on earth? Clearly Moses, when it's all said and done. You know, I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. It literally, in the Hebrew language, means I, I stammer and I stutter. I fumble over my words. That's what he's saying. So if that's you, if you've always had a stutter, maybe you're the preacher that's supposed to be opening your mouth. And if it just went through your head, like, I knew I should have gotten into speech therapy. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, just as you are. You're not eloquent. You're not good. You don't have any big words in your vocabulary. You're the man or the woman. Is God speaking to you? Listen, pay attention. Hear his voice. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Oh, that's a painful verse. Because that's God saying, painful it is as it is, I, I have made this person blind. And I made that one deaf. And I made that one unable to speak. We do all kinds of things as Christians where we want that to say something else. I cannot... I cannot look at this and say this is, you know, somehow incorrect or should be interpreted a different way. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm relying upon you, you guys. Who was the the blind woman that wrote all the hymns? Fanny, Fanny Crosby. Do you guys know that Fanny Crosby actually wrote, wrote under? Some of you know Fanny's. Uh, um, hymns right we we sing them i think we sang one this morning i'm not sure but anyway um fanny actually wrote under uh a several other names uh because uh she and her publisher recognized no one would want to buy a hymnal where one person had written all the hymns in the book so when she sat down and wrote you know, 385 hymns in a matter of days and publish them all in one book. Blind, completely blind. Okay. She said that her blindness compelled her into the presence of the Lord in her mind and she was content with her blindness because it kept her from the temptations that she might see in the world and longed for the day, because later there were surgeons, once she had become famous and popular, who thought that they could probably correct her vision. She said no, because she longed for the day where Christ restored her vision, and the very first thing she ever saw was his face. I think we misplace a lot of these things sometimes. Christ. Maybe, maybe, you know, my and your halted behavior. We're, we're not like, you know, the special, you know, beautiful people. We're just the simple, normal people. And maybe that was Christ's intention for us, that we would go and declare to the world, 
right? I, I take that back. Some of you guys are beautiful. You know, so the rest of us are, well, normal. But anyway, <clears throat> here, you know, he, you know, didn't I do this? Haven't I created now? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. You, you'll have enough. You, you'll, you'll stutter and stammer just the right amount, Moses. It's going to be okay. If I'm with you, you're going to be fine. I hope we all understand that in this room. Notice Moses' doubt here. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Your plan is flawed, God. I appreciate you coming to me, but I just need to set you straight. Think about that. To have the audacity to correct the Lord. We see it throughout the scripture, right? <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to the apostles and telling them, I'm going to go and be betrayed and then be tortured and ultimately I'll be crucified. And when Peter says, not so, my Lord, it's literally the idea of that'll never happen to you. That's what Peter is saying. You are wrong. Not so, my Lord. Those don't fit together. You know? It's like trying to push those ends of the magnet together that just slip all around. These, these things are opposed in force. If he is, in fact, your Lord, then the answer is always yes. As difficult as it is, notice verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, he's not Aaron the Levite, your brother. I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Wow, there's a lot to examine there. God was angry with Moses because Moses is fighting against God's will, but at the same time, apparently God has already spoken to Aaron, and Aaron is on his way. Look, he's right there. You know, Have you had situations like that occur? Where <clears throat> right as you're praying the prayer, God is sending the answer. I've shared with us many times before, uh, some of you are newer and haven't heard it a number of years ago. A woman who attended this church came to me distraught. A number of circumstances had changed for her, and she was suddenly, without warning, financially destroyed. And it was massive. She comes to me, you know, financial trouble, and I, you know, having this selfish complex that we often do. You know, my first thought is, I'll help her out. And as she begins to describe, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I can. And the more she describes, I'm realizing, no way. And by the time we're done, I'm as desperate as she is. Like, good Lord, we got to pray. And so after literally a half hour of her compiling all that's going on, I am as desperate for her as she is. And I say, we've got to just pray. We bow our hearts and we just 
call out to God, Father, we really need your help. And we just pray, both of us, incessantly that the Lord would see her through these circumstances. And as we're saying amen, the knock comes at my office door. And uh, one of the gals from the church is coming through the door with a phone in her hand. And she, I'm thinking that she's handing it to me. And She's handing it to the woman that's in my office. I say, no, it's actually for her. Okay. She takes the phone. She begins to talk, and she just bursts into tears. And I'm thinking, oh, no, it's worse. And those tears turn into, thank you, and I can't believe this, and praise God. Long story short, it's her very wealthy aunt on the phone, who is a very devout Christian, lives in Florida, and she's written a check and sent it to her, which is going to take care of all of the financial problems. Here's the thing. Her aunt wrote the check seven days ago and put it in the mail before the problems began. Before the problems began. This woman only became aware of how bad the situation was the day before she came into my office. The aunt is just calling to say, hey, it is a large check, so be looking for it in the mail. Don't want that to just get thrown in with the rest of your bills or something. Before the problem occurred, the Lord laid it on another person's heart. The answer was on the way. We just sat down in the moment and the aunt down in Florida suddenly hears the Holy Spirit saying, you should call her, calls her, not at home. Where is she? At the church. What's the church's number? I don't know. This person does. The aunt ends up having to call around two or three people until she finally gets a phone number of the church and calls as we're saying amen, the phone's coming through the office door. Now, you'll probably suffer through financial ruin and no answer will ever come. So, you know what I'm saying? Don't get your hopes too high. Maybe that's what the Lord wants you to go through. The point, the, the, the more important understanding is God sees our difficulty. This whole situation, that's what the Lord is saying. I'm seeing the suffering of my children. I'm sending the answer. I'm talking to you, Moses. You can't comply. Well, let's get Aaron in the mix. See, he's right here. And now we're putting things together. God is truly in control of circumstances, yours, mine, and Moses. He's also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. Now, you will, shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and he will be and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you. You shall be to him as God. That's quite a statement. You're going to be the funnel by which I deliver this message. Moses speaks to Aaron a lot of the time, but then Moses also speaks himself, right? Because Aaron takes matters into his own hands here soon, doesn't he? 
And there's a golden cow before we're done and a whole bunch of death. Because Aaron thinks that he's capable of being Moses. And he's not. The anointed position of the Lord belongs to Moses alone. So you shall be uh, to him as God and you shall take this rod in your hand with you. You shall do the signs. There is this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. We've referenced this morning already. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Listen, if you don't know it already about me, I'm very much into apologetics. I like the details. I like to know and understand the things of the scripture, the history, the background. I like to teach those things. I like to make sure that this congregation, this flock is very well equipped in that way. But you must understand that that is not the power of God. The Holy Spirit will use us in our simplest way. You don't have to be that person that has all those details nailed down. You simply need to be a life that is surrendered to Christ. That's what you need to be. That's what the world outside this wall, outside these walls, needs. is people that are surrendered to the Lord, that are allowing Him to work in their heart and in their mind. You know, I think that here in America, especially, we worship the intellect so much. You know, knowledge, wisdom, science, so much that we think that, you know, our faith has to be all about those same details. I'm into those details, but that's not the core of our faith. The core of the faith is the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. You might not like this, but you were a dirty, rotten sinner before Christ touched your life. And he's changed you, and he's in the process of changing you, and that's what the world needs to see. That you are something different. You are now, you are now presently a child of God, saved by grace. His work accomplished in you. The gospel message, the simplicity of the gospel message. Moses is just going to show up and say, you need to let these people go so they can go worship God. That's his message. Freedom to worship Jesus Christ. That's our message. The world is becoming more and more opposed to that all the time. Previous to this verse, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. Back in verse 21, it says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's through what the world would call foolishness of the gospel message that we are saved. It's not through the great abundance of wisdom and knowledge. Look at verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. I just want to remind us all again that uh, Ruel and Jethro, those names are interchangeable. It's, they are both Moses' father-in-law, one man. They went to his, uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please 
Let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So he just wants to make sure the family dynamic is intact. No strain or friction if he's going to depart. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses took the rod of God in his hand. That becomes this very powerful symbol in his life and in his ministry. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, all of my Calvinist brothers want to argue with me, and I just want to be clear. I'm not a Calvinist or an Armenian. Okay? I don't take either side of the fence. What I recognize about Calvinism and Armenianism is both sides have many points that are very right. Very right. right? Predestination, totally believe it. Why? Because the Scripture teaches it. There's all kinds of things about Calvinism and Armenianism that are absolutely right. What I have recognized is our enemy, right? Do you understand that Calvin did not teach Calvinism. His students formulated the five points of Calvinism. Calvin didn't ever formulate those points. Some of you were like, I got no idea what you're talking about. Praise God. <laughs> Their students polarized away from one another. All the Armenians gather over here. It's all about choice. You could lose your salvation. All of the Calvinists over here, there is no choice. Once saved, always saved. And now we're not going to do ministry with one another. In fact, if anybody brings it up, we're going to fight incessantly right in front of everybody and just divide the church and drive people away. How stupid is that? Our enemy has taken truths and caused one group to hold on to certain truths and throw away other truths. And then this group over here holds on to these truths and throws away. And now they hate one another. Oh, no, we don't. Yeah, you do. Stop fighting. Right? Here, <clears throat> my approach and what I see elsewhere in the Scripture about God hardening his heart is, right, God, you would agree with me in this. If you don't, you're wrong, is unchanged. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? He has no turning, right? No shadow within him. Uh, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father above. There's nothing. He doesn't do good to one person, bad to another. It is likened this way. I love this illustration. <clears throat> the sunlight will melt the ice and harden the clay. If you are a person who God has softened you and melted your heart, that's the condition of your person. If God, shining the same love and the same light upon you, has hardened you like Pharaoh, it's the condition of Pharaoh's rebellious heart that causes him to harden. Not God. God isn't different towards Pharaoh than he is with Moses. It's the condition of Pharaoh's angry, self-righteous, ungodly, indignant heart 
say to Pharaoh. This whole thing is going to cause him to harden his heart. Not an unfortunate thing that we see. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. <clears throat> so I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. <clears throat> if your heart hears that and you say, that's really harsh of God to do. Keep in mind, Pharaoh has already killed countless children of the Israelis. He has forced them to throw them into the Nile and kill them. God really does defend his own. Came to pass on the way at the encampment of the Lord, met him and sought to kill him. Whoa, where did that come from? Moses is on the way and God meets Moses and wants to kill him. Follow why. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Look, <clears throat> it is speculation, but it really does seem to be that Moses had intended to circumcise his son but Zipporah was opposed to it. And now Moses is going to be the leader of the Israeli people, and his own son is not circumcised. And God says, I'm going to kill you for it. Why, why wouldn't he kill Zipporah? Because Moses is the head of his household, gentlemen. We often hear, Different things said about households and wives and strengths and weaknesses and who's more spiritual and less spiritual. It doesn't change the position you hold, gentlemen. Your role and your position is you are, you are the head of your household. It's not something you earn. It's a role given to us by God. And if there is spiritual weakness and failure in our home, God lays that responsibility at our feet. Our feet. It's a difficult thing to embrace. There's a lot to be considered. Pray about it. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that they had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. That is the only appropriate reaction. If you are in the midst of affliction, my encouragement to you this morning is bow your head and worship Jesus Christ. Because he sees your affliction. 
I'll ask you. Does it feel like God sees their affliction currently at this moment for them? The answer is no. They are daily under the taskmaster's whip. They are daily engaged in their struggles. What they have to do is trust God's word through God's servant that God sees their affliction, is answering their circumstance, and going to deliver them. It's going to be some time before that deliverance finally comes. And in fact, realistically, it's over 40 years before it is seen its true fruition. Are you prepared to wait that long? 40 years for the process to completely unfold? Consider, consider, because the Lord is answering your affliction. He does see your circumstance. As, as a, a servant of the Lord, I'm standing here this morning declaring to you the word of God that he sees your affliction and he is answering your prayers. Trust. Trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. <clears throat> Father God, again, we lift up Beth Cain and her mom and just ask that you'd be with that whole situation and the family, the motorcyclists in New Hampshire, Lord, our world's situations. More significantly this morning, our own hearts. Help us to trust you, Lord. It's very easy for us to doubt, very easy for us to be overwhelmed by our circumstances. Help us to be men and women that trust you more than what we see right in front of us. That as you said, the just shall live by faith. Help us to be men and women of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.